Well, if you will, turn to your, in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're with us for the opening scripture, uh, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm not going to read the entire thing, that's why we did it this morning, but uh, I am going to tackle this text verse by verse, um, starting in chapter, uh, verse 7. Before I do that, I want to just introduce the text to you a little bit. When was the last time you used the word glorious? Glorious. It's sort of a word that's been brought back into our vocabulary. According to Google Dictionary, which we all pretty much use nowadays, the definition of glorious is, is having worthy or bringing fame or admiration, having a striking beauty or splendor that evokes feelings of delight. Glorious. Just a few examples off the top of my head. If anyone likes desserts, here I have before you, there's a churro place right around the corner from my house, a churreria. Did I do that right? Anybody help me out there? I practiced that a lot this week. Uh, and it puts all other desserts to shame. It's glorious. This is a picture just a couple weeks ago, two of my nieces grubbing down on some handmade churro with ice cream and chocolate sauce and whipped cream and pecans. Purely glorious. There are many football fans. When the Rams won the Super Bowl, it was a glorious moment. It was a glorious celebration, right, Mike? Not in here anymore? <laughs> I would have expected to hear an amen from him. <laughs> when we say things are glorious, we are stricken with a feeling of excitement and delight and joy. People often use the term, the glory days. You used use that term before, the glory days, right? Which means what? Usually meaning the years of youthfulness or success or popularity, the glory days. In human terms, we would use... The word glorious, we usually have a, a comparison in mind. Churro Sundays are glorious compared to all other desserts. Super, Super Bowl championships are glorious in comparison to all other wins that season. The glory days were glorious compared to one's position as it relates to said days. I certainly had my glory days when I skateboarded a lot more. But now the, the, the pavement doesn't feel as glorious as it does when I fall down. And you're like, how does pavement ever feel glorious when you fall down? You, wouldn't, you just wouldn't understand if you were in a skateboarder. Just the, the smell and the feeling of just falling down and getting back up and doing it again. It was glorious. It doesn't feel that way anymore. In our church, and in the church, we say, God is glorious. Amen? God is glorious. What do we mean by that when we say it? What do we mean by God is glorious? What do we mean about the glory of God. Well, a succinct definition of God's glory is the public display of God's infinite beauty, worth, and holiness. His glory are His attributes on display in the world. But just, not just our church, right? Not just our church. Throughout mankind, we have boasted about the glory of God. Listen to Psalm 19, where it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And when we compare God's glory to another, there is no beauty more beautiful. There is no worth more valuable. There is no being more perfect than God. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to another, nor my praise to carved idols. The Lord is glorious beyond category. The Lord God Almighty belongs in a category all by himself apart from all creatures and created things. 
He is the glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And His glory is beyond all comparison. Psalm 72, 19 says, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen? There is no one. There is nothing. There is nothing matched. There is no rival. There is no comparison. God is unparalleled in His glory. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. The cherubim are, are flying around in the presence of God, hiding their face and hiding their feet from the radiance of God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with His holiness? No. The whole earth is filled with His glory. He is glorious beyond words. Yet He is glorious in His word. He is glorious in all of His works. He is glorious in all of His promises. And in this passage that we look at today, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we will see the glory of God revealed in two covenants. Two promises as Paul puts them in contrast, the old and the new. One covenant fading away. A covenant of works made unattainable to man because of his sin, which leads ultimately to death. And another covenant, radiant, eternal, grace-filled, spirit-empowered, spiritually transformational, shining bright from the face of Jesus, which glory he imparts to us by his grace. And what for his glory? I want to show us more specifically from his word that the old covenant, glorious as it was, is unmatched and unparalleled in comparison to the glory of the new covenant that we find in Christ. And while we see what God has done as we contrast the two, let us worship, let us exalt how gracious and how merciful God is in giving us his son and extending the benefits of the new covenant to the church, to us Gentiles. So have your finger in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but let us first take note of, of the background and what's going on leading up to this. The background, as you see in your outline there, 2 Corinthians, written by the hand of the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, offers this struggling church a letter to express gratitude and to strengthen the church in Corinth. More narrowly, Paul, Paul's purpose in writing to them is to vindicate his apostolic ministry in order to strengthen the faithful majority of true believers in Corinth. You see, Corinth was, was a port city over there in Greece, strategic for, for missions and evangelism as traders and travelers would pass through. And... Uh, as part of trade and travel in a fast-paced city of commerce, it comes with a lot of darkness, a lot of false teachers coming in and, and distorting the truth. And as false teachers came in, they, they attacked the credibility and credentials of Paul. He even asks in the beginning parts of chapter 3, do we need letters of commendation? But that's what false teachers would do. They would come in with letters of commendation and credentials to say, how legit they were. But what was Paul's letter of commendation? Well, Paul, as a spokesperson of God and as a mediator of the new covenant to the Gentiles, Paul reminds them in this section of the promises guaranteed to them in the new covenant. And the express proof, his credentials of these promises are through their visibly changed lives through the gospel. I don't need credentials, although I have them, Corinthians. Look at your changed lives. Look what Christ has done for you. Look at how he has changed you. Let that be credential enough. And speaking of changed lives, Paul describes where a true changed life comes from as he compares the glory of the old with the glory of the new covenant. And there is no better person to speak about the glory of covenants than the Apostle Paul himself. To describe himself in the book of Philippians, he says this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, 
based on the law, faultless. Paul was a champion of the Old Covenant. Paul had the belt. He was the title holder of the Old Covenant. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was well-educated, law-abiding, ordinance-keeping, gatekeeper of the Jewish way of life. If anyone was going to speak about the superiority of any covenant in contrast to another, it would be the Apostle Paul. According to Paul or Saul's Jewish way of life, Moses, Moses would have been his hero, right? A man chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, to mediate the covenant of works, the law, to the people of God, to maintain a relationship with God. Moses was the man of the old covenant. He was the spokesperson. He was the guy that you would look to to hear from God. But that was Paul's former way of life. Similar to the way Moses was called by God to lead the nation of Israel by way of God's glory from the burning bush to the glory of God blazing in a pillar of fire upon Mount Sinai. Paul, now a minister of the new covenant, confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, blinded by the light of his radiant glory, was sent on mission to preach this glorious new covenant, the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul went from champion of the old covenant to boasting of the glory of Christ in the new. No one was more eligible. No one was more qualified. No one was more credentialed than Paul to speak of the superiority of the two covenants. Now allow me to digress for just a moment. Just to quickly mention the meaning and nature of a covenant. It's not a term we use too often in our culture, maybe in the church, but a covenant, put simply, is a promise. In the Bible we see unilateral covenants and bilateral covenants, unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, for example, is a unilateral covenant made by God with Abraham in that God alone was going to bless his family with a nation, a name, an offspring, and that through him the world would be blessed. It was an unconditional covenant that God promised to fulfill, and he was going to do it, and he is still doing it to this day. On the other hand, the Mosaic covenant was a promise mediated through Moses at Mount Sinai where God gave the nation of Israel some 600 laws, which included the Ten Commandments, to obey. In this bilateral conditional covenant, the nation was required to obey the law of God, and in turn, God would bless them. But if the opposite would be the case, and they disobeyed, God would then give curses for disobedience. In the giving of the law, God mentions that none of these laws for Israel to obey are too hard, meaning none of them required supernatural abilities like the ability to fly or the ability to have superpowers. They were all based on human ability. In the reiteration of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this, For the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven to say that uh, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. But here is where we have the problem. Human beings are spiritually unable to keep the law of God. Because of our human nature bent towards sin, we are by nature in rebellion toward God. We see it through the entire history of the nation of Israel. We see it uh, through the sands of time. And if we are honest with ourselves, we see it when we look into the mirror. As our catechism asks, since no one can keep the law of God, what is its purpose? And the answer is this, that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. And the beauty of this text that we are about to look at, and the beauty of God's glory in the new covenant, is that we are promised in a unilateral work of God that He would give us new hearts. 
and the ministry of the new covenant instituted and fulfilled by God himself through the work of the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, he would bring us to himself. He would cause this within us. Look at with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 now, starting in verse 7, as we take one bite at a time through this glorious text, as we look at the new and old covenants in contrast. God's glory in contrast. Starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? This brings us to the first protesis and apotesis, or in other words, if then. You can see on your outline, if and then. If this is the case, then this must be the case. If then. Paul speaks from lesser to greater when he mentions these if and thens. In Hebrew literature, this is called a cow wahomer. There's a bunch of study nerds out there. Anybody like, yeah, I want to know the intricate details of the scripture. Well, this is called a cow wahomer. It is a logical principle used to understand Jewish law. It means that what applies in less important cases will certainly imply in more, more important cases. The phrase has come to mean an inescapable conclusion. We see Jesus using these logical forms of speech. In Matthew chapter 7, seven he says, If then, although you are evil, if you are evil, and know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If the lesser being evil, then the greater being even greater, right? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, being evil as you are, then the ultimate good, how much more of a gift would he give to you? So this is what Paul is using in these points. In the covenant given through Moses was glorious. Then the covenant given through the ministry of God the Spirit must be even more Glorious. The interesting point that Paul makes here is that the covenant leading to what? To death. This covenant leading to death is glorious. How can that be? How can a covenant that made man utterly incompetent and flatlined be glorious? It was glorious because the outcome of death and the inability was no fault of the covenant or the covenant giver. It was glorious because God ratified this covenant with his hand. Literally written, literally chiseled on letters of stone that came from him. It, it was a merciful act that God would enter into a relationship with sinful mankind. Albeit conditioned upon keeping his law in the old covenant, but even the opportunity, even the opportunity to draw near to God is unquestionably glorious. There is no doubt that this covenant was glorious. The, the entire Hebrew Bible shouts of the glory of God in his law. Isaiah 42, 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, boasts of the glorious law of God that was given. Israelites understood that, that although they were unable to keep the law, it was still glorious. It came from the one true and living God. I mean, even these tablets of stone chiseled with letters from God, the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle. The glorious old covenant of God. The law was glorious because it instructed man how to fellowship and enter into a right relationship with the one true and living God. That is glorious. How, how do we know you, God? How do we obey you, God? How do we live in, in a relationship with you, God? The old covenant said... Do this, 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 600 times. The death-endowed nature of the old covenant was no fault of the covenant or the covenant, guilt, uh, the, the covenant giver. The burden of guilt lie entirely on the recipients of the law, God's people. 
But as we fast forward into Paul's letters explaining, the further, explaining further the purpose of the law, we are able to recognize God's intent of his law in sharp relief. Paul tells us in a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, listen to this. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For if I would not have known about coveting, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of all kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to be death in me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But what does it do for us? It shows us all the ways we come short of living in a right relationship with God. You see, the law was good. The letter was glorious. We need the whole canon of the Hebrew Bible, unlike some pop cultural preachers out there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. But there's some that say, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need the law. That's old. That's outdated. That's not relevant anymore. Oh, it is. It is relevant. We should be reading our, our Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. God's law reveals to us the perfect standard of God in all the ways that we as humans fall short. Sure, God's law is also written on our conscience. Romans 1 testifies of that. We know that uh, when we do wrong, we feel it, right? We feel ashamed, we feel embarrassed, we feel sin-stained, but there is nothing like being confronted with the perfect law of God written from the hand of God and be totally flattened by the weight of its responsibility. Have you ever read, you know, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, be like, how, how did they do that? That's like a full-time job, even more. And they still tried, and they still fell short. The law was made so that we would look at our lives, and we would say, like the prophet Isaiah, God, I am ruined. I am a mess. I am unable. I fall so short. And Paul elaborates again on this point in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the law of God? Is that what he says? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God. Remember, the glory of God is the visible display of God's infinite beauty, worth, and holiness. Oh God, I fall so short of your infinite beauty, worth, and holiness. But if the glorious law of God leads to death, then how much better, how much more superior is the ministry of the Spirit that leads us to the knowledge of God. And God would covenant with us in Christ to set us free from sin. Not to be laden, not to be burdened with 600 some commandments, but to be free from the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. What is the ministry of the Spirit here. He's contrasting the death that brings, is brought from the Old Covenant with the ministry of the Spirit. Well, if you look back at verse 6, look what it says. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives what? Gives life. The Spirit gives life. He promised this to His people even, even in the days under the Old Covenant. Look at Ezekiel 36, 28. 26 to 28, I will give you a new heart, he tells his people, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Look at what he says. I will. I will do this. I will do this. I will cause you. Not do this, do this, do this, and do this, and do this, and then we can have a right relationship. God knows that we are unable to keep his law and therefore, in a unilateral work, says, I will do this for you. And he mentions this to the, his people, Israel, right? And oh, church, how floored we should be that God would let us in on his plan. That he would graft us into this people and give us his son. It's amazing. 
Moving then to the second protesis and a protesis, if and then. Verse 9 reads, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. So the if part of this clause is saying the same thing as before, namely uh, that if letters are chiseled in stone, bring death, and now the ministry of the Old Covenant brings what? Condemnation. Then, how much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory? If I know how bad, how deep, how depraved, how disgusting sin is to God, then I can recognize and boundlessly appreciate the glorious nature of the new covenant. Here Paul rephrases his point, turning from the ministry of the Spirit in verse 7 to the ministry of what? To the ministry of righteousness. He is saying the same thing, but expanding on the range of the new covenant. The new covenant comes with the Spirit. The new covenant comes with righteousness. What is Paul getting at here? Well, if we just move to the right a couple of chapters, we can see that what Paul means by this term righteousness in the new covenant. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. Just over a couple pages. He says, therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And what does he say in verse 21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him. We are not reconciled to God through the law. Not through the 600-some laws seen in the Hebrew Bible. Not your own set of laws that, that you believe would please God. We are not reconciled to God through the law. It leads to death. It leads to condemnation. It is ineffective and powerless. We are reconciled to God through the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness. Not righteousness that would... Be some not righteousness of our own, right? That would be some type of law keeping, the things that we do, but an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness not our own, a righteousness that in verse 21 here says comes from who? Comes from Christ. It belongs to Christ. And it is it is ours for the taking. Christ ratified the new covenant in his blood. He who knew no sin. He was perfect. That's what it's saying. Became sin on our behalf. Meaning the sins applied to him, hanging on that cross, our sins applied to him, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He trades us our sin for his righteousness. That sounds, that sounds crazy, right? What kind of crummy deal is that, Jesus? It's like trading one Bitcoin for one dollar. It's like trading in and out for five guys. It's like trading Chick-fil-A for Popeyes. And I know I'm a couple years late here, okay? But it's like trading Bel Air for Skid Row. But Paul gets a little bit more scandalous than that, right? It's like trading your death for his life. Amen? That's amazing. But that is what the glory of the new covenant brings. Ministry of the Spirit, ministry of righteousness. And this new covenant righteousness, it, it far surpasses the righteousness attained from the Old Covenant. It overflows with even more glory. Romans 10.4 says, For the righteousness, or sorry, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This verse keeps going in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10. The text before us, It says, for indeed, what had glory in this case had no glory because the glory that surpasses it. Now, Paul's not not contradicting himself here. He's just saying that, that the glory which is in Christ, the glory that is in the new covenant, is so glorious that even the glory of the Old Testament looks as if it didn't even have any glory to begin with. It's a hyperbole. It's like comparing the Delray Lagoon, right, over at Delray, little baseball field over there for you Westsiders or, 
or I guess Pollywog Park for anybody who lives in the South Bay, right, to the Pacific Ocean. It, it's, it doesn't even look like a body of water, right, compared to the, the glory and splendor of the ocean. It's like, it's like comparing a lit candle or, or a match to the sun. That's what Paul is getting at here. It is so glorious. It is, it is beyond illustration. Then moving to verses 11 in this third set of protasis and apotasis, if and then, reads this, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. This is a third way of saying that the Old Covenant brings death, the Old Covenant brings condemnation, that this Old Covenant is fading away. Yet the New Covenant, promise of God, ushers in the Spirit of God, ushers in the righteousness of Christ, and it is guaranteed to remain. It is unilateral. It is unconditional. It is something that God does and sovereignly applies to us. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 15. He says this, For this reason He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Amen? The old covenant, death, condemnation, fading away. But those who are in Christ are beneficiaries, are inheritors of His life and this covenant given through Him, and they are secure. Ephesians 1.13 even elaborates on this, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal and promised the Holy Spirit. From the ministry of death to the ministry of the Spirit, from condemnation to all, to righteousness in the Son, to all who believe, from the fading of glory to the enduring of glory. I hope that as you read that, and as you recognize your place in the new covenant, that we would say together, thank you, God. Thank you for making this covenant for us that, that, he, that you do, that we cannot fail in because you do not fail. What a great hope, what a great promise, what a great place to belong in the fold of Christ. And that is just what Paul tells us in these next two verses here. If you look with me at verses 12 and 13, and Paul compares his ministry to the ministry of Moses. Verse 12 says, Therefore, having such a hope, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Because Paul had a confidence, a hope in the new covenant, he uses great boldness in his witness. Just as a side note, our, our modern day understanding of the word hope is much different than the biblical definition of the word hope. It denotes a supreme confidence that's grounded in divine realities. It's a confidence. It's not, it's not wishful thinking. And you can really see that definition in action here. Paul has confidence here. He's not wishfully thinking that, that he has the new covenant. He knows. He has confidence. He has hope. The new covenant in Christ is not temporary. It is not a stumbling block like the law. It is not works-based. It is a unilateral work of God imparting righteousness and justification to sinners through the sacrificial and finished work of Christ by the Spirit and he opens blind eyes to see him. Paul contrasts the new covenant that comes with boldness to the ministry of Moses in his dealings with God from Exodus. I think this is why this, this chapter really stood out because there's, there's so much relationship between the new and the old and and, and how Paul understands the Old Covenant and how he uses it in contrast. And I, I wish we had an entire sermon dedicated to just these two verses because there is, there's so many cross-references. It is so rich. But let's just look at verse 13 and I'll make a quick detour to what he's talking about in the book of Exodus. Look at verse 13. He says, We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face 
so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what is fading away. You probably noticed, but back in verse 7, I failed to make a point about the reference to Moses, right? A lot of you noble Bereans out there are like, you didn't even, you didn't hit on that. Good eye. It's because I was getting to this verse right here and I didn't want to labor on it twice. But look back at verse 7. It reads, But the ministry of death engraved on ledges of stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory fading as it was. Then in verse 13, Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. Paul's making a really big deal about the glory of the Old and New Covenant as it relates to Moses, and he continues to compare and contrast the two acts of God's glory. If you'd like to turn with me uh, to what Moses is talking about, starting in Exodus chapter 33, it's in the background section on your outline. Um, If you'd like to take notes, I included it there for you. Exodus 33 and 34. But let, let, me, let me recap for you what's, what's going on here in Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, without getting into, into the whole history of Moses' dealings with God from the book of Exodus before the Exodus, uh, let's first note that, that God in, these, in Exodus 33 and 34 are the, are the seventh and eighth meeting that Moses had with God on Mount Sinai. So you can imagine, you know, you're climbing up this mountain, climbing down, talking to Israel, talking to the people, climbing back up, going back down. Now, just to recap, the first ascent that Moses took up this mountain, God offers the covenant to his people. He says, hey, would would you like to enter into this covenant with me? So Moses comes back down, um, tells the people, hey, uh, the living God wants to enter into this covenant with us. You guys want to do that? Like, yeah, bring it on, let's do it, you know? Like, wow, the living God, that's amazing. So the second ascent up the mountain, uh, Moses tells God that people accept the, the stipulations of the covenant, namely blesses, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Then the third ascent, Moses goes up the mountain, speaks to God, comes back down, and he consecrates the people uh, after this frightening encounter of God's appearance as a fill, pillar of, of fire upon the mountain terrifying to the people. And they're like, hey, don't let, like, have him not do that again. That was, that was freaky. Um, and then the fourth ascent, Moses and Aaron go up together where God then announces the Ten Commandments to the people. The fifth ascent, God gives various laws seen in chapters 21 to 23. They come back down. The sixth ascent, Moses brings Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of the people on, this descent, on his descent, he builds an altar, made a sacrifice, and ratified the covenant with the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkling the people with the blood. That, that sounds strikingly familiar to the new, right? Without the others, Moses continued up the mountain. He received the Ten Commandments on stone, which 2 Corinthians 3 makes note of, chiseled in stone. And upon, upon the descent, Moses sees Aaron has led his people to make a graven image, a golden calf. You remember the story, right? Literally, they just ratified the covenant. They said, okay, God, we're going to obey you. We're, we're going to follow you. Bless us when we obey you. Curse us when, you, when we disobey you. They just ratified the covenant. He just made the offering. And what happens? They break the second commandment. They break the second commandment. Absolutely astonishing. In an act of frustration, Moses breaks the stone tablets, disciplines the people, goes up the mountain on his seventh ascent, and and Moses, frustrated over the people of Israel, intercedes on behalf of them. Now picking up in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, and I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture because it it really relates to what's going on in 2 Corinthians 3. It reads this, look at Exodus 33, 12 to 18. Says Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I, I know you by name, but you have found and I've you've found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's all he says. 
And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said what? Now show me your glory. Show me your glory. Are you kidding me? Just think about it for a second. What Moses is asking. Okay, the dude that, that talked to God from a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, right? Okay, the guy that, that witnessed the ten plagues of Egypt. The guy that, that literally put his staff in the sea and split apart a, an entire sea. What is he asking? <laughs> Show me your glory. What are you looking for, Moses? Picking up in 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about. My glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. But no one, no one sees my face and lives. That is how glorious the glory of God is. You will drop dead by beholding the glory of God. Sinful humanity in the presence of God's glory. That's why even the holiest of angels cover their eyes. Verse 34, now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I'll write on the stone tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, buddy. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended from the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Wow. The glory of God passing before Moses. And what was his response to that? Look at verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low to the earth to worship. Wow. The glory of God passing before Moses. Moses bowing low to the ground. Oh, forgive me, God, that I even ask to see your glory, for I cannot behold that. Skipping to chapter 34, verse 29, this is the last section we'll read, but this is, comes down to the veil here, as we see in 2 Corinthians. It says, This came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, and he was coming down the mountain. I'm sure he was clutching them real tight. He's like, I don't want to break these things again, because I don't want to go back up there, and and, and be, be frightened by the glory of God once again, that Moses did not know his skin on his face was shining because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. The glory of God was, was so radiant that it did some type of supernatural feature to his face, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And after all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke with the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went to speak with him. Now we have no idea how, how long Moses wore this veil. But it's very interesting. The glory of the Lord of the old covenant was veiled so that the sons of Israel could not perceive what was going on there. The glory of God from the face of Moses, shining as it once, br brilliant as it was, divine as its reflection was, 
Paul tells us what? That it was fading. It was fading. It was fading because something more glorious was approaching. Something more radiant than the shining face of Moses would dawn upon the world. And we know Hebrews 1.3 even informs us. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is more radiant. Jesus is brighter. Jesus shines more glorious than the old covenant glory in comparison to the new. Finally, contrasting the spiritually veiled they and the spiritually seeing we, Paul says in verses 14 to 18, not going to labor on it. Verse 14 says, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. But we all, they, and but we all, with unveiled faces, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. How glory is this new covenant? How glorious is this new covenant? Moses meeting with God on the mountain. Now this glory that's more glorious than that shines from us, church, because it shines from the face of Jesus. And we all beholding in a mirror see the glory of God in the face of Christ. To the perishing, to the unbelieving, a veil obstructing the view, their view of the truth lies over their minds and hearts. And until God sovereignly and powerfully removes that veil, the glory of the Lord will remain unseen and misunderstood. So we pray, church, and we petition to this end that God would work mightily. I know that you've, you've presented the gospel to friends and family members, and sometimes you, maybe you've said, man, I nailed that one. I hit one, that one out of the park. I presented that so clearly and so understandably, and they're like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand her. That's just ridiculous. But we pray that their veil would be lifted and that they would clearly see the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ and the glories of the new covenant. And that as verse 18 states, that they would experience transformation from glory to glory to glory, from regeneration to justification to sanctification, from glory to glory. And the last point on the outline, ministers of glory. It is our job. We are the ministers of this glory. Paul, as an apostle, as a mediator of the covenant to the Gentiles, now gives us that commission. We are the ministers of God's glory of the new covenant. He says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received Mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, those, in, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light, the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is what we have. Something way more glorious than anything you read in the Hebrew Bible. The glory of the new covenant given to us in the face of of Christ. The message is clear that the veil is removed in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the glory of God. He is where true life is found. He is where your righteousness is found. He is where your security remains. We proclaim Christ. And as we do that, we have before us 
in the front of the church here, we have before us a picture of the covenant that I've been speaking of. Just as Moses sprinkled the nation of Israel with the blood of the sacrifice, ratifying the old covenant of works to the people of God Israel, so too Jesus ratifies this covenant in his blood, the new covenant, not the blood of of an animal sacrifice, but through his very blood. So when we consider, when we come up here, when the song is saying, after, after I pray, as we consider what this means, we don't look at it as a, as a picture of, this is what I gotta do. I gotta do all this, these things to please God, to, to keep my relationship with God, to, to covenant with God. It is a picture of what has been done for you. It is a picture of what has been done for us, church. Christ has finished the work of reconciliation before God. And it's through His blood it is poured out for you. It is a symbol. It is a picture of the ratification of this covenant. And just to reminisce on that very moment, as the disciples were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples, saying, Take this and eat. It is My body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he had given it to them, and he'd say, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sin. All who are spiritually hungry this morning, all who are spiritually thirsty, come. Come and eat. Come and drink. God has done this for you. There is nothing uh, stopping you from, from remembering him and drinking of the cup of the covenant. Come and eat, come and drink, come and be filled not merely by a, a little cracker or a tiny little cup of juice, but let the meaning and let these elements satisfy your soul. Christ has come to you. God has covenant with you. And I want to leave you with this prayer as, as I invite Ian up um, to play a couple final songs. I'm not sure where he's at. But I want to leave you uh, with a prayer of dedication to the audience of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Paul says this, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good, everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's sing. Let's feast on the covenant that is pictured before you. Oh God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we're able, we're able to see the whole Bible woven together. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and your servant Moses who understood what was going on and that we are able to see clearly in hindsight the glory of the covenant, fading as it was from the old, but remaining steadfast and bright and glorious in the new. Lord, thank you that we are are not bound to rules and regulations that, that we fall so short of, that you sent your son to accomplish that on our behalf, the fulfillment of the law, and the ratification of the law in his blood, the sacrifice. And for his glorious resurrection, Lord, we boast in that today. And we look forward to your return where you make all things new. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.